Good afternoon. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome back to Festival Forums at the Adelaide Festival. Welcome to those of you in the room. Okay, we're having a standby in terms of one of our guests, but that doesn't mean I'm not going to start. It just means that we, I, I will have a slight delay in terms of bringing Sean Gladwell online. My name's Tom Wright. We're meeting here at Regattas on the banks of the river here in Ghanayata, land of the Ghana people, whose ongoing custodianship of the land we acknowledge. It was never ceded. This has been a site of storytelling, of art and of ritual for thousands of years, and may it continue to be so under their guidance. Uh, the idea of the Festival Forums is that we get to, in some way, explore, widen and broaden our understanding of the art that the, has been explored in this year's festival, and obviously one component of the festival, one that goes beyond the boundaries of time, because this is going on all the way into June, this year's Adelaide Biennial. It's my pleasure to be joined on stage by the curator of the Adelaide Biennial, Sebastian Goldspink. Uh, Sebastian's sitting there in the sun, I hope your legs don't get too warm. And next to Sebastian is Sarah Waters, who's joined as one of the artists involved. Sebastian, first of all, Sydney-based independent curator specialising in emerging art. In 2011, he opened the artist-run space Alaska Projects as a platform to exhibit contemporary visual art in unused or disused spaces, since showcasing over 500 artists across 100 exhibitions. He's also curated nationally across Australia, internationally, with exhibitions in LA, in Christchurch, in um, New Orleans, yep, uh, and is recognised as an alternate art strategist working at the forefront of Australian practice uh, at the MCA, Museum of Old and New Art down in Hobart, Art Month Sydney. Uh, in 2013-14, he was appointed guest curator of the John Fries Memorial Prize, an annual non-acquisitive award recognising emerging and early career visual artists. And you're currently the would you call yourself the curator? What's your title there? The it's kind of undetermined. Um, I guess I'm just the boss of a new gallery uh, at um, the w Wallara Gallery at Redleaf uh, in uh, Double Bay in Sydney. So those of you who know Sydney will know that next to uh, where the Redleaf Pool is, where Peter Finch swam all those years ago, and the mu municipal offices, there's also a lovely sunken garden, and next to that is what used to be the Wallara Library, which is where the Petrov Royal Commission sat all those years ago, and now you've got it to turn it into art, so well done to you. Thank, Thank you, you, Sebastian, for being here. <laughs> Thank you. Um, next to Sebastian, Sarah Waters, um, artist, academic, in 2006, Thanks to a Ruth Tuck scholarship, she went and studied, of all things, at the Royal School of Needlework in the UK. Uh, where is the Royal School of Needlework, Sarah? Well, I feel like I'm bragging when I say this. It's at Hampton Court Palace. <laughs> <laughs> did you get to live there and sleep in the Queen's bed? <laughs> I wish I did, no. I could just arrive before all the tourists every morning and I was allowed in and to walk to the classrooms. It was pretty special. Uh, Sarah's built up a, a body of practice over the last 20 years, both academic and as a practising artist. Uh, she also teaches, um, we were just discussing before, the ongoing status of what it is to teach art here in Australia in this, these difficult and troubled times. A multiple, multitude of exhibitions across Australia in recent years. Her work at this year's biennial storied sailcloths is one of the more um, exquisite and dark, in some ways, pieces that uh, rewards very close observation, a remarkable piece. Thank you for being here, Sarah. Oh. Thank you for joining us. I should say that you're a local. It's good to have you here. From Murray, born in Murray Bridge, works in Kent Town. Lovely to have some local practice. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Um, let's just do some overview stuff while we're waiting for... Um, is, is, have we got Sean online? I might say hello to Sean. 
see if he comes up on the screen. And here is Sean Gladwell. Can you hear me, Sean? I can, Tom. Hi. Thank you for joining us. There are people in the room here, all of whom are smiling benignly at you from Adelaide. Uh, thank you for joining us for the difficulties of uh, Zoom and thank you for your um, contributions to the biennial this year. Um, Sean's an artist, a dancer, a skateboard practitioner, uh, a, a troublemaker, a, a, a refractory soul. Um, he's Work practice over the last 25 years has been of enormous influence. So I won't go into details about every exhibition and every show, that everything that he's done, but maybe of interest in the room to say that it ranges everything from uh, being the official war artist in 2009-10 and seeing up close the deprivations of Afghanistan uh, all the way through to works installations, which are both uh, video and in 3D and tactile form. His practice is deeply influential and dis uh, the stimulates much discussion. Born in Sydney, lives and works in Melbourne and anywhere else when you can get there, I assume, Sean. Thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. Um, I might just start... And hi, hi, just oh, you're Sorry. saying hello to your colleagues there. Hello. If you can, can you see them in your hi. camera? <laughs> I can in the, in the mirror, actually. It's quite interesting. So oh. there you go. It's, um, I'm here in telepresence, but I can see you guys in reflection. It's very beautiful. Um, Sean, I might, if I'm, I might just, if you the people on stage, forgive me, I might just start with you to help you get warmed up. Your work is, um, w uh, is as much about the city as it feels like it's about anything else. I was really intrigued in the piece that you've produced for the Biennial, how Melbourne's liminal spaces, you know, those kind of spaces which are, you know, not, I'm not, it's not quite clear where we are, down at the Docklands or in, uh, uh, at the back of the Victoria Market, to what extent are you talking about the kind of way we experience those um, spaces, railway underpasses, weed-infested, vacant lots? Are they important to you as places of art? Um, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, and I really um, enjoy your adjectives, um, Tom. That's very much the, the space that I'm interested in, the, the kind of you know, industrial spaces or the kinds of standards of modernism that have given us you know, um, in in Melbourne, you know, fairly wide roads and, you know, heavy industry overpasses and that aesthetic that we've seen, you know, pictured in so many different ways through Australian art history. And, um, you know, my first love of that was, was through, of course, Jeffrey Smart or some sort of modernist framing. But I, I thought also it was very important for me to use that as my subject matter because that was my local five kilometer radius from home over the last uh, year or so. So everything in that video was pretty much within my, my sort of lockdown radius here uh, in, 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 uh, in Victoria. So um, that was just, you know, the way that I kind of cast the locations really. Um, glad you brought it up. It gives me a chance to segue, Sebastian. It, we, this theme about the locus of art under COVID lockdown and the reduction of space in our cities, in which nearly all of the artists are urban artists, suddenly became an issue. And in JD Reformer's piece, it's actually mapped on the walls and on the ceiling. Uh, well, maybe tell us a bit about JD Reformer's piece and um, how it works. Yeah, so, um, I mean, from the outset, I, I, I was really clear with myself and I guess the team at Ag said that 
I, I definitely didn't want to make a biennial about COVID, like a biennial that says like COVID is bad. You know, like we, we all know that. What I'm interested in is, is uh, you know, both the kind of negative and positive effects of this period of time and how it affects uh, people. So JD's work um, uh, looks at that same kind of thing that, that Sean's looking at, like what it was like to live in a 5K radius and and it, it was extraordinary it was bizarre uh, you know i i i was in a i really liked my 5k like you know i for me my work was in my 5k um um um, there was a place I could swim in my 5K, so I was very fortunate. But some of the artists, you know, I, I think about Tom Polo, who was living in Fairfield, where he had the Australian Defence Force on every corner. And, you know, there was a period there where they couldn't exercise. So these really kind of hard lockdowns. But what I was kind of interested in this period, because this, this period sort of frames the entire development of this biennial, is that, you know, a sort of a positive thing that came out of it is that I think that people really kind of narrowed their thinking to think about what's important in life, you know, what, what, what's really kind of important in life. And, um, you know, from that you get a lot of the artists dealing with issues around family, like connections to family, being able to sort of see family and the, in the importance of family. That's the kind of stuff that comes up, you know, like what car you drive or, yeah. what, you know, yeah. uh, you know what, what suits you wear. That, yeah. that you know, becomes irrelevant. But also two things like travel, like, you know, for, for people who kind of travel for a living, sometimes you get a bit jaded with traveling going, oh my God, I have to go to Melbourne or I have to go, you know, I'll never feel like that again. Like I will literally, like if someone said, do you want to go to, to um, you know, Dapto tomorrow, I would go, let's go to Dapto, <laughs> you know, like anywhere. Um, because you don't sort of realize that till that's taken away from you. Um, so I'm really interested in the, the sort of, the, the, the dichotomy of this time of, of, of both positive, I mean, positive stuff, but also to incredibly negative stuff concurrently. It just sort of feels like the business end of humanity. Um, Sarah, one of the aspects of this, this it has not a piece about the COVID or about lockdowns or about the past two years, and yet they're completely present. One of the aspects of that might be that we had enforced time for reflection, for solitude, for individual work, for contemplation. If used properly, the time became deeply meaningful, didn't, didn't it? So I'm kind of interested in your work about the way in which large-scale themes and extremely small, almost minuscule themes feel like they collide. Let's start with the large-scale. The pieces are, are, are sailcloth and, and actual sails. What, is, what is you, are you getting at with your appropriation of sail work? Uh, so they're not actual sails. No. They're, uh, I guess, often they're repurposed uh, vintage pieces of cloth that most of them have been imported to the shores of um, Australia, which is really important that, you know, they got imported as Hessians, oh, sacks, like sacks for wheat or something like that, or, or Hessian for upholstery. And that, um, you know, the traditions that I'm using were also imported to this shore. So I think that kind of, you know, that make-do sale is really important. So my ancestors who arrived in 1838 to Port Misery were sail makers. And so they bought with them those, their materials, they bought with them their skills and they, you know, they may do. There's like one story from another line of the family of having to use whatever they could find because they got stuck on a bullock dray in the kind of the swampy area of the southeast and what could they use to protect themselves at night? They just used cloth and, you know, made it work for them in this 
again, make-do, homely, unsettled kind of situation. And sales become sort of like a tabula rasa on which all of that colonial identity gets written, don't they? Because they're often repurposed. A sail on a sailing ship could become a tent in which the family establishes itself on Indigenous land and sort of becomes this white marker of identity and, and then often they were later repurposed again. Things were packaged up and sometimes even shrouds as, yeah. as well. Uh, so there's a sense there of family identity. That's obviously very clearly important to you. Do you yeah. feel like you're, you're telling your family's story? Yeah, I feel like I'm telling my family story as it is entangled in all of the other family stories, particularly of um, from a settler colonial perspective. But, of course, that that colonisation has had great impact on you know, First Nations. You know, I, you know, recognise and am so grateful to live on Ghana country, but I also always acknowledge Bondi country as well because that has shaped myself and my family and there's this... You know, the opportunities that have come out of that, but the cost of that homemaking as well. Oh, there's so many things to ask here. <laughs> uh, talking about that, you know, the, the, the old land, um, another theme is this idea of drainage, is that that land had to be sort of... Ta had the water taken out of it. It had to almost be desiccated in order for it to be re-inscribed. Um, tell us a bit about that, because there's, the, there's elements of Fred Williams and uh, Indigenous practice that are referred to as you gently inscribe these sailcloths. What, it's about specific land as well as about a more general conceptual space, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's right. And I think there's this micro, macro, you know, certain regions, but then those regions can be extrapolated to talk about colonisation, not just in Australia, but in other nations as well. And the drainage project, you know, one of my ancestors was on the drainage board. Like, he was at the forefront of making those decisions about draining the land in the southeast of South Australia. And, you know, there's this great book that was a giveaway book at um, one of the UniSA libraries called Making the South Australian landscape and it's by Michael Williams if anyone wants to look it up it's literally charting how the the wholesale you know uh, irrevocable kind of damage was done to the landscape move by move and so the land went from wetlands you know migratory birds like you know a lot of different um, fish species to pastoral land yeah. and you know I I kind of I'm a little bit cynical because my ancestor who fought for that then went and bought a whole lot of land <laughs> once it was drained. Yes, it's the, the cartelisation of the way we control land has been a big theme of the festival so far, not necessarily a planned one. It just keeps coming up in conversation. Obviously, at a time of floods on the eastern seaboard, of drought and so on, we're really conscious of it. Um, Sean, I'm, one of the verbs that's really present in your video is uh, one of the key sections is this, uh, you use verbs all the way through it, but playing was a really strong one. I was really interested in that idea of playing because to a certain extent the whole thing is an act of play, isn't it? When you invert yourself on a colon colonial sculpture there of a, and you find yourself coming eye to eye with a pink Tasmanian granite version of a kangaroo, there's a sense of the artist and the 19th century discourse sort of coming into collision with each other. And then later in more whimsical fashion, we, we sort of hear up close the subtle patterns of the um, signalling of a pedestrian crossings indicator. How, how important in your work is the idea of play? I, yeah, I mean, it, it's a huge part of the process of making work, but then it's, yeah, also, I guess, a, a process that starts off with the training and, you know, the kind of research as well, that there has to be this kind of ludic element to, to thinking about a kind of, um, you know, a proposal or a, a project. Um, and, you know, I was really excited about, and also very worried about this 
project because it was, you know, um, an opportunity to show with so many incredible artists um, that I, ha I had to kind of keep to my process, which is play, but also realized that there was quite, you know, serious issues that are paralleling that concept um, that I also wanted to somehow represent. But definitely play is, is um, huge. But then I'm, I was also ob observing Sarah's work um, and it was great to see your work, Sarah, in, in the exhibition as a physical experience because, um, you know, I, I, I really, I, I think that there's this kind of dexterity to the work where there's a, a play with materials that is just so mind blowing. I'm just sort of um, thinking about the experience of the physical work as well as what we've, you know, I've just heard and what you've just discussed with your work. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sort of looking at other, other sort of artists and their material kind of um, intelligence and then sort of, yeah, still making video about uh, play, but still loving video, but very much a, an observer as much as, um, you know, offering a, a small little um, sort of a video essay on play. Um, so when you say you're observing other artistry, what is it that you're seeing? Oh, I mean, I'm first of all, just thrilled that observation can be made as a live body in a museum. I think that's the first thing. How great is it to be able to actually see work um, as detailed and as credible as, as Sarah's? And so that was, I think the thrill is to actually be able to empirically observe um, art as an experience now. So, uh, and then of course, the thrill of, of seeing um, the complexity and scope of, of um, Sebastian's show. Um, but then, um, yeah, to, I, I have a very humble offering as, as an observer of say Melbourne, but also through artworks that have been made in Melbourne as well. I, you know, like seeing Rico Rennie's um, uh, work for the first and only night it was available at the Rising Festival here in Melbourne, which was offered to us with, you know, great kind of, um, you know, um, heroicism really, because it, but um, that project initiation really sort of influenced my thinking of, of Melbourne in a way, um, Nam. So it was um, sort of seeing work that I was seeing in the festival for the first time, but also being influenced by as well was um, a huge part of the experience for me in this show. Oh, well, since um, Sean brings it up, Sebastian, tell us a bit about Rico Renia. You've got a couple of uh, Gamilaroi men sort of in this, just by, I'm sure, but in it almost by coincidence, but it did feel like there's a Gamilaroi conversation taking place there. Uh, tell us a bit about Rico Renia's work. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely a conversation between, you know, men from, from, from the, the same country, which was a beautiful thing to see. So um, Rico and Dennis, had, uh, Dennis Golding uh, is the other Gamilaroi man in the show. And uh, they had never met before, so this oh, right. this, this uh, exhibition afforded that um, opportunity, which was which was really great to see, really beautiful to see. I mean, Rico's work is um, extraordinary, and um, the um, OARR work, which is the one with the Rolls Royce, uh, uh, then the one followed with the uh, the, the Monaro afterwards, 
um, that, that Sean was referring to are both really, really extraordinary works. And um, I kind of knew exactly where I wanted to place them, you know, right from, for, right from the get-go. And I've been a big fan of Rico's work for uh, a long time. And I think, you know, the parallels between what sort of Rico is talking about and what Sarah's talking about are really interesting. And then also over to Sean, I mean, just uh, the location of Rico's work, um, particularly in that, 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 that Docklands area, that Footscray kind of area, that very kind of, you know, unusual part of Melbourne, not the sort of postcard part of, of yeah. Melbourne, which is really interesting. But what um, Rico is talking about, what Sarah is talking about, is, I guess, sort of family histories and... and um, and um, I guess the, the consequence of histories and um, the impact of like intergenerational trauma and how, how um, you know, things in the past that are suppressed, they always kind of bubble up. So looking at the sort of artesian quality of, of Sarah's work with those beautiful uh, sinkholes or cenotes in the, um, in the um, Mount Gambia region, this idea that there's a surface level of family and underneath there's family histories. And I mean, I don't know anyone in any family that has a perfectly well-adjusted, happy family. I don't know anyone who's like, I love Christmas because it's just a time to get together and everyone's really happy and there's no, there's no trauma in my family, every family, it's just the nature of family. But what I really like about it as well too is how it's analogous to, you know, national ideas. You know, we, we, as, a, we as a collective group of people, we have the same kind of trauma and that, and that, that trauma um, comes up. Rico's work specifically details the, the intergenerational trauma of looking at um, Gamilaroi land, looking at Walgut where his grandmother was taken from her family, you know, and, and, and the implications of that. And of course, one of the great shames of Australian uh, history. And, you know, the multiple generations, you know, people talk about the stolen generation, but of course we're talking about generations and generations and it continues uh, to today and what the impacts of, of, of that is. Um, and, and we see those impacts, you know, at a family and an individual level or, you know, like the impacts of Sarah's family and, and what happened in her family and the bravery that she has as an act of reconciliation to address those, those concerns kind of full on. It's really, um, it's really, you know, refreshing and amazing to see. But I often talk about this thing which, I've, which I firmly kind of believe in is that the one thing that unites all Australian people is that we're all displaced people. And ironically, no more so than, than um, Aboriginal people who have the, the double horror of being, you know, displaced on their own land. But everybody, everybody in this room, you know, if, if you're Aboriginal, your people have been here. If you've not, they've come from somewhere to be here. And maybe they came in positive terms, maybe they came in negative terms. But we've got this sort of collective collective sort of sense of displacement and this sort of hopefully this collective kind of challenge to form a sense of place and identity going into the future so that that thing between the individuals and, and the national is something that I'm very very interested in. When you're displaced or when you are in an unfamiliar land almost the first thing you do is you start mapping it don't you? And so that, that's one thing that starts to become really clear is that in order to map, you need, if not literally, you need in some way figuratively even to adopt a bird's eye perspective of the landscape. So in Rico's piece, you can see the stuff taken by drone from above. And so the experience of doing wheelies around dirt or in, in a abandoned land down at the Docklands is one thing, but seen from above, it becomes an act of inscription and, uh, and it almost becomes totemic, doesn't it, to misappropriate the term. There's a whirl in the dirt which becomes about time. 
Whereas um, in your work, Sarah, there's um, similar lines and similar sites of implosion as well, but they're done, as I said before, in almost minuscule hand, like a medieval manuscript, uh, tiny, tiny, tiny work. H how are your eyes coping? <laughs> it must be like being a jeweller sometimes. <laughs> well, I do wear glasses now, but it's less my eyes, more my back. <laughs> Just for a warning for everyone out there, move around. <laughs> but that's obviously important to you because there's this sense that sometimes yeah. you're looking into your work and sometimes you're looking down on it and that difference between the bird's eye and the ant's eye view feels very present, is that fair? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I feel like they kind of oscillate between um, a topographical view and then a portrait view and then a, a almost like, you know, view looking through the slices of the land, delving down into it. So there's all those perspectives happening simultaneously and there are kind of big marks for me but very, very fine marks as well and there's these moments where I, you know, question myself as an artist, like, why am I doing these tiny stitches that are almost invisible? No one is ever going to see them, but the, it's that act of being intimately involved with that particular pattern that allows me to you know, get to a place of reckoning that I can't get to in any other way, like through the body. And I feel, you know, my, my body, for example, stitching colonial knots, you know, did my great-great-grandmother stitch those in the same way? And so it becomes this point of connection between generations. Well, I was also struck by the idea, the cultural idea of the sampler, which is a very important part of yeah. female experience. And, you know, as a young girl, we've still got in our family something that was done in 1826 by a four-year-old, and we hold on to it as she was learning how... Yeah. And, she, and she was simultaneously learning language. She's learning alphabet. She's also learning stitching. It's about sort of uh, tactile passing on of female traditions, isn't it? And that yeah. is very present. Not that there's actually any direct referencing to samplers, but these do have the feelings of family keepsakes. Yeah, yeah. As, almost as if we've sort of ex excavated them out of sales. Yeah. Sean, you were saying something? Sorry to interject, but I, I've got some bad sound on this end and I'm hoping it's not affecting this conversation. Is that right? No, is we're not hearing anything from you. I'm that's hearing right. anything. Oh, I see. No, that's all right. I think I've got some sort of distortion and I, I feel like I'm I'm interjecting just oh no but it's, it, I'm so sorry I'm no so that's sorry. All, it's it's I not proving distracting at all I can promise you it's, it's okay, only no worries uh, I just want to know why you have a, a dragon underneath your desk I mean that's <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry guys it's, it's because I haven't got the super duper airpods I'm just going off my laptop's um, speakers but I'm sorry to bring up a tech issue. I'm so it sorry. It might be your yeah. patrician See Henry you Park's beard that's um, causing the, <laughs> causing a field of interference. Uh, so you'll forgive me, Sean, if I don't go, but we, was there anything you wanted to say in reference to what Sarah was just saying or should we keep moving? Moving, please. I'm, I'm interjecting, sorry. That's, uh, that's wonderful. Uh, we mentioned Gamilaroi artist Dennis Golding. I'd love Dennis's piece in the in the exhibition, Casting Shadows. In fact, many people talk about it. This is the one for those of you who've been to the biennial. Dennis is an urban Gamilaroi man and grew up in Redfern, and he's taken the cast iron sheets off the, uh, uh, the, the ter veranda terraces of an inner urban house but, and made them into an inverted ziggurat or chandelier of uh, the kind of uh, metals and spaces that um, the Redfern mob grew up with. Um, it's a remarkable piece, and people stop and photograph it, don't they, Sebastian? Tell us a bit about it. Yeah, no, it's an incredible thing. So Dennis, uh, yeah, uh, Gimilaroi man, grew up in Redfern on the block um, in uh, in uh, the terrace houses there. And, you know, um, those, those originally... Um, 
Redfern, like a lot of, of, of Redfern was set up by uh, rail workers, Aboriginal rail workers coming from all over New South Wales to work on the railways um, at uh, where Carriage Works is now, if you've been to Carriage Works in uh, Sydney. And it's a really important place, like in some ways, you know, Dennis and I talked about it, Redfern as being the kind of capital of Aboriginal Australia. It's one place in, you know, Aboriginal communities throughout the country, if you reference Redfern, people know what you're talking about. And um, it was a really important place for the union movement, just in general, through the railways, um, but also too for, you know, the Aboriginal civil rights movement and, and, and the sort of... Um, yeah, the incredible kind of work that, that, that came from there. Um, it, uh, it's a place that's always kind of interested in me. Like when I was a kid, I remember visiting the block in Redfern, this one specific area, and, um, you know, there were bombed out cars at each end. You couldn't drive through that. Police didn't go into it. It was an extraordinary kind of area. And, um, um, you know, it was something that was really important to me. But, but Dennis talked about... Um, you know, that Victorian architecture, that terrace house architecture as being Aboriginal architecture. You know, and the first time he was talking to me, I was like, well, you know, what do you mean, Dennis? Like, you know, and it's this kind of science fiction of, of appropriating it, which makes perfect sense. He's like, that's what Aboriginal architecture looks like to me because that's what I grew up with. And I had a similar kind of parallel story when I first came to... Uh, came to Adelaide, to Tandana, to, you know, look at this biennial, I met up with Uncle Mickey O'Brien, and we had this really interesting conversation, and in about five minutes into it, conspiratorially, he slid across a, a, a map of the centre of Adelaide, and he's like, what do you see? And there was this outline he had drawn on the map of uh, kangaroo, like this being the place of the big red kangaroo, and what he said is, when they built this city and they built the roads, uh, subconsciously, they built it around the shape of the kangaroo. And Uncle Mickey also knew that that wasn't, you know, wasn't a fact, but it was this kind of appropriation of space. So this kind of uh, indigenous futurism um, that's present in both those examples is really interesting. Dennis is an extraordinary man, though. Like, he, uh, you know, fun fact for him, he just um, designed the, the Wallabies jersey, you know. Um, and it's an incredible story uh, for, for a, a young man, young queer man growing up in, in, in that part of the world and what he's achieved. And, um, you know, from these terrace houses, uh, you know, so th that were in a very kind of rough area, to make this thing of absolute transcendent beauty is extraordinary. And it's a joy and an honour to have him in the biennial. We, we should also remark that it's an act of memory and a comment on effacement and elision and so on as well, because the block, for those of you who haven't been in Sydney recently, if you go down Everly Street, the houses were all gone and have now been replaced. In fact, on the site where these houses were that um, his work refers to is now an 18-storey block which is largely designed to be international student housing. So what the block was is not what... It's still Aboriginal land. It's still owned by the Aboriginal Housing Corporation, but it's no longer the site. It's an act of memory as much as anything else. But what I was intrigued by is why something as ornate as a chandelier... You could turn it upside down and make it into a birthday cake or a ziggurat, as mm. I said, but he's chose to hung it from the ceiling as if it's suspended in time. And all of the, that lattice work shadows that was these pieces which were really inherited, uh, we would have imported from Glasgow or Birmingham or somewhere, I would have assumed, in the 1880s, instead becomes an act of indigenous patterning on the walls and on each other. What's the, what do you think the chandelier reference is? Um, I don't know, I think, it's, I think it's about sort of uh, overcoming. I think it's about overcoming place, you know. And the, the wonderment for him in this place, like one of the panels, so they're cast of the actual, the, the panels of the lace 
uh, the lattice work that, um, that were in the actual houses that he lived in, with the exception of one, which is this place called the Settlement in the block, which was like, I guess, kind of like a youth centre where they would take, um, uh, you know, young kids from the Redfern area kind of on excursions. And yeah. I guess, you know... Um, uh, and lots of boxing. Yeah, yeah, boxing, <laughs> boxing, but also taking them to like, you know, Dennis talks to me about going to Lapa, to La Perouse, where there's also, you know, really significant um, Aboriginal community and, and sort of, you know, trips to the beach and I think just like trips out of Redfern, out of the intensity of uh, Redfern. But yeah, it's an extraordinary place and a, and a place that is, that is um, as, you, as you mentioned, Tom, rapidly kind of going under, under kind of dramatic uh, change. Um, but you know, hopefully, some some part of that soul still remains. And, De and Dennis is actively involved in in some of that with the rebuilding of the Mundine Gym and things like that. But it, but it's a very fascinating uh, area. Oh, and it's a big theme, and it's a theme here in Adelaide as well, isn't it? Is um, urban space for Indigenous practice is becoming something that's under enormous stress. Um, in Sydney, the Waterloo estate is for, destined to be demolished and creating space where Indigenous communities that have established themselves for three or four generations find themselves once again in precarious space. We're undergoing similar things here. I can only, every time the police sweep through Victoria Square and take um, APY people from one side to the other, you're conscious that there's no place to rest. Sarah, do you have an observation about these, these kind of works in that room? Because it was a remarkable part of the whole exhibition. I'm conscious Serena Bonson's um, uh, Warren Burnburn pieces are, are sitting there in conversation, literally and metaphorically, with um, Dennis's. What did you make of it? Yeah, I mean, there. It's stunning. <laughs> That's, uh, Dennis's in particular, like I've spent a lot of time looking at that, that patterning and your observation of, it, of the patterns on the wall and that kind of marking of space in that mm. way, I think mm. is very powerful. I mean, I think I can come at it from an artist's perspective and I, I want to say that the, the great gift that is being in the biennial is the connection that Seb has forged between artists from all over Australia. I mean, it has been a great gift to spend time. You know, I got to meet one of my heroes, Sean, <laughs> you know, to, to, yeah, forge those connections and to see people put their, you know, their best work forward. That's really commenting on, on all of these changes that are happening in Australia today. Well, well tell us a bit, obviously a biennial is uh, an offering to an attendant, but it's also an offering to artists. Mm. How much do you get time to spend talking to each other, both about practice and about sort of, what, just about it, shooting the breeze, really? Do you actually get to get, spend a bit of time together? Uh, we've definitely got to spend a lot of time together, like, with the installing. And, and there have been, I think, you know, Seb, like I said, he's been very good at saying, oh, email meet this person if you're in town, you know, catch up with this person. Unfortunately, travel hasn't been as easy as we know. However, I do feel the conversations happened through, a lot through social media and the work itself. Like, when I said to Seb, I'm thinking of making five sales, he just said... Of course you are, because <laughs> they're, they're in conversation with particularly Kate Scarterfield's work or Leith McGregor's work and that obsessive mark making that, uh, you know, I think definitely joins Leith and myself together in our approach as well. So we were having these conversations artistically from our studio, sometimes without even knowing that we were having them. But it's important as well too, like those connections, not just on, on the artistic, like we had an extraordinary example uh, you know, on the sort of the night before the opening. So uh, two of the artists in particular, so Stanislav Pinchuk, uh, who's in the biennial, uh, is uh, Ukrainian born, grew up, you know, grew up in, in Ukraine, then moved to Melbourne. 
um, and Jelena Celecki, who's um, uh, Serbian but grew up in Croatia and had left uh, Croatia. And I was talking to them both independently about, um, about Ukraine. And obviously, you know, um, Sanislava is just devastated. Um, you know, the town that she grew up in was bombarded that, that morning. Uh, Yelena was also uh, devastated because it was very reminiscent to her of of the Balkan Wars and the Yugoslav War that she, you know, that she lived through, and she said it felt like the same thing. And they had never met before, and they were both alone in Adelaide, and I was still working, like trying to get things done, and I just had this kind of feeling of maybe I should connect them. You know, they're both kind of shy; they don't they don't know each other, um, and I sort of connected them, and nothing. You know, I didn't hear anything back, and I was like, "Oh, okay." And then I called Stanislava, and I said, um, uh, "You know, is everything okay?" And she goes, "Oh, you don't need to worry about a thing. I've just bought four bottles of wine and two pouches of tobacco, and I'm heading over to her hotel now. And we're going to drink through this, and we're going to get through this." And they arrived arm and arm the next morning, you know, crying, and they said, "We are sisters," you know. So those kind of connections that can be forged, particularly in times of, of crisis and solidarity, um, there's just been numerous bizarre examples. I don't know, it's just, you know, it's a, this whole experience has just felt like a, like a crazy time. You know, we had uh, Laith McGregor, one of the artists who's from the Northern Rivers, uh, he called me in the morning and said, I'm, I'm stuck in floodwaters trying to get to the airport. Um, you know, like we're stuck, the water's rising, we're stuck. And somehow his mate, who was like an ingenious four-wheel driver, got them through the waters to the airport and he got on the last plane out and they're sitting on the tarmac and it's like pissing down. And the captain even came on and said, we're not sure if we're going to be able to take off. And he got off and, and he made it here. So that kind of day, the opening felt like way more dramatic than any opening or anything that I've ever experienced. Well, and sections of the tarmac were under two to three centimetres of water, weren't That's they? Right, Sheeting yeah. as the plane tried to sort of yeah, skid its way off the... Uh, um, but you must have, uh, Sebastian, you must have felt there's something odd going on that you program a biennial on the theme of free and state. You can't possibly have anticipated what was going to happen in Kiev and Kharkiv and Lviv at the moment, but those resonances and those reverberations are very present whether not obviously not by design, but you can't help but walk through it and suddenly it does become a piece about actually what you're free to do inside your own state and how much you can anticipate. It, it, uh, alas, we've lost Sean there, but we, it's a, a theme of his work as well, is that you get to assert your freedom and independence within a city according to your own terms, not necessarily according to the terms of power. Yeah. You can go to the opera, but you can also invert yourself upside down on a colonial statue or um, ride a wheelie under a railway overpass. You can express your freedom in a multitude of ways. And so freedom suddenly became an issue, actually what it was to be free. Do you, are there other instances where you thought, oh, art's imitating reality or vice versa, somewhat hideously here? I mean, for, for two years that happened. I mean, the initial, the initial, the initial kind of um, idea around the, the title was based on South Australian history and the establishment of of yes. of, 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 of the f the free colony of South Australia in 1836, a couple of years before Sarah's uh, family arrived here, and the sort of beautiful kind of promise of that proclamation that, of course, wasn't realised. You know, um, that this would be a place for free men and. Um, that Aboriginal people would be afforded the same rights as all British citizens and all of this stuff that sort of, um, you know, didn't materialise. But the sort of, um, you know, this is the state where, um, you know, it was one of the first places in the world to give women the vote, first place to decriminalise homosexuality here. 
you know, in a place that was very much in opposition to where I was from, New South Wales, you know, coming from a, you know, Aboriginal and convict and Irish family there um, in, a, in a penal colony, you know, so um, this place felt very different. But, but one thing that was really interesting in, in the last two years was the kind of difference between states, actual states in Australia, because the pandemic response was state-based, largely. Yeah, and you sort of saw the different kind of identities of states come out. Like Western Australia felt like a very different place, felt like another country to Victoria, well, you know, and uh, all of this kind of stuff that is about these kind of divisions sort of really came to the head. So it was kind of fascinating watching it. And also, too, the, the use of the word freedom, which is such a such a... A, a, a troubling kind of word now, um, you know, what, peop what people are claiming in the name of freedom. Right now, Putin's claiming, you know, the freedom to protect themselves from Ukrainian aggression. You know, I mean, people are, people are subjugating uh, words all the time and, uh, you know, we're, we're living in crazy times. But it's, I also read it in terms of being a free state, as in a statement. Yeah. You know, like it's to a certain extent, you can, w there are assertions taking place, and some of the assertions are big and gestural, but some others feel small and intimate. So I'm keen just to return to that, Sarah, in a way, because um, tell us a bit about your choice of what you choose to put into this, into these sales, because there's a, a, a del very deliberate choice about the kind of thread and the way you work with the fabric mm. and the surface, isn't there? It's not just like it's core stitching. What kind of threads are you working with? Yeah, so all of my materials, uh, bar one or two, are repurposed materials. So, you know, when I, I work with them, they've been in other homes, they've been in people's collections, they've been worn or, you know, they have marks. And, um, I, you know, I feel like I'm pulling not only my own family histories out using those materials, but other people's family histories are being co-opted into these tales. And so each, each uh, sale tells a different kind of or has a different focus around regions and land use. So rather than landscape, more the land use that has happened since um, settler colonisation. So from drainage uh, to pug holes, which are a very particularly yes. Australian, uh, sorry, Adelaidean um, past. Uh, there's, you know, gardening, which these are all kind of normalisations and ways that we live with the land and country, but ways that... I think I've just accumulated through stitch after stitch after stitch to to show those generations of change that, you know, they are, as I was stitching, I was thinking, these are too much, like there's too much stitching in them, but that's intentional to, you know, try to take a, a reckoning of what has happened up until this point, and a lot has happened in a few hundred years, and I like to think that the next generations will use other stitches and other found materials to keep adding to that. But what are those found materials? Because some of them feel like they're almost oh, yeah. metallic or silk or something like that. What kind yeah. of things? Some of them are um, strings. A lot of them are very uh, practical, like uh, that you might find in a household. So, you know, your cooking string yeah. that I have dyed in particular ways. There are some beautiful um, French uh, kid leather purple gloves that come from a very close friend's mother's collection that I, you know, very reluctantly cut up and put in this sail that's thinking about mining the way we literally dug our hands into the, into the soil and ex ex extracted um, treasures. Uh, there are... Uh, doilies and lace yes, parts yeah, yeah, there's yeah. yeah I mean 
everything <laughs> there but you can imagine. As things like those doilies or those fringes and so on that feel like they're in conversation with the work upstairs, you know, this big scale industrial era lattice work, ziggurat slash chandelier, yeah. and your small scale things, both of which d light dapples through. Yeah. And it, the whole thing starts to feel ephemeral and, and beautiful and strange. Um, one thing I wouldn't mind asking, Sebastian, obviously every time you do mountain exhibition, it's determined by the architecture in which you get to present it. And there's always something remarkable about going down at the art gallery here, and you do feel like you're going down to the subconscious. But the biennial continues upstairs, and one of the rooms has the work of Darren Sylvester in it, which um, I was quite... In, it, it's one of those rooms which feels like it's about less than it is, when you, and then you, the more time you spend in it, the, it feels more and more rich. Just tell us a bit about those th sort of three key works in there in Darren Sylvester's room. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting that the, the architecture of the space, and I, I was very conscious to make a sort of differentiation between the, the, the two kind of levels to create a kind of well-rounded experience for visitors and, you know, light and shade, literally light and shade. So upstairs I wanted to be kind of light and airy and breezy and then downstairs to sort of be deep and dark and dense. Interestingly, upstairs, um, a lot of the works is sort of uh, about death um, and this, but this sort of idea of looking at death as change, you know, as, as analogous to kind of change. So you have um, Tracy Moffat's incredible video work from 1997 entitled Heaven. Um, you've got a work which is about um, the United Nations program that they had where they had a clairvoyant who they asked about um, world affairs for 30 years, you know, all, all of these kind of attempts to sort of commune with the other side, to commune with death. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then you've got Darren Sylvester's work, which is this uh, extraordinary kind of high stylized six panel photograph, looks like a, a fashion photograph almost, and he, he very much plays with that, those ideas of a group of impossibly beautiful kind of people uh, sort of sitting around a, a seance uh, table. And then you also have this kind of yellow kite that's sort of uh, flying erratically around the gallery space. And so on a Ouija board, um, there's like a little triangle that you put your fingers on and that's called a planchette. And so the, the, the kite is meant to be sort of analogous to the, uh, the planchette sort of spilling out, spe spelling out the words. Um, but it's all about this thing, and once again, picking off this idea of states, like transcending states, yeah. and the ultimate transcendent of states is, is of course, to, to the other side, uh, uh, death. It's weird, l literally no joke, right before I came here, I gave uh, CPR for the first time to a woman in, in uh, David Jones, and uh, I've never done it in my life, it was the most extraordinary thing, so I'm still a bit freaked out about it. But I was there, like, you know, doing the kind of uh, compressions and stuff, and, you know, like when you learn on a dummy, you kind of know that. But what's weird is when you're doing it on a person, you can feel in the heel of your hand their heart um, pumping back to you. And, uh, and we lost her. Like, I lost her for a moment, like 100%. And she came back, and she's, she's off to the hospital now. So, you know, God willing, uh, she's well. But, yeah, it, it is this kind of weird, this weird thing. Once again, something that unites all of us that we will that we will cross over but you know this is something that has also been around us a lot in the last two years you know uh, you know questioning our own mortality and you know you know pe people around us uh you know um have lost their lives to to, to this pandemic mm. um um and you know not to mention you know mental health stuff and the, the consequences so all of this stuff is is around us i don't know it just feels like a heightened time and some people have come to see the 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 exhibition they've talked about it being this really kind of emotive experience and of course 
um, they asked me, like, did you, did you set out to make this really emotional exhibition? And, it, and you never, I don't think you ever do something like that. You don't go, I'm going to make it really emotional. Yes, I, think, I think it's like a, a consequence, you know, of a, you know, like the thing that makes you cry the most when you're watching someone crying is when you're watching someone who's trying not to cry. You know, like the footballer retiring, going, we had a few good years, and I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Like that, that's what kills you is that holding back. And I think it's the same with, with exhibitions. You know, you, you don't try to make emotional exhibitions or I think you just, I, I think you, you lose control of that. You, you just kind of make it and then that's the consequence. So, um, yeah, the inclusion of Darren's work is, um, is, is, is a really nice thing because it's looking at, at that thing uh, in a very kind of interesting, stylized way. But it's mesmeric as well. So it's your point, isn't it? You can be quite cool and the heat of emotion can be read into the thing very easily because mm. I've followed the kite around, just followed it all the way around for five or six circuits. It's suspended on a wire for those of you who haven't seen it yet. Um, and you sort of, and you realise, oh, it's not the kite, it's a stingray. I'm underneath the water and I'm, I'm underneath a, a ray as it moves through space and time. And then of course you equate it with the planchette and you find, and then you look and sure enough, the third part of the component is that there's a doorway, a literal doorway, which partly resembles a security screening device in an airport, which is always a moment of portal yeah. passing, isn't it? When you pass through that security gate, every time, everyone well, maybe I'm the only one, you sort of have that moment of panic, that little yeah, moment yeah. of panic. Am I going to go off? Am I going to set it off? What part of metal in my soul is it going to read <laughs> that I, I haven't managed to clear yet? And Did I leave my pistol in the glove box? Yeah. <laughs> and am I passing through to the other side or am I on the other side passing back into life? Now I can finally fly sort of thing. And Dennis's, I mean, uh, Darren's work just refers to that and yet it also feels like a piece from a science fiction film. And That's you're right. just having, after the kind of, um, subconscious experience it felt like an elevated one and then right next to it is Tracy's work and I sh just should anecdotalize there was a an elderly lady in a Zimmer frame coming out as I was going in saying well I don't see why they needed to warn us there was nothing disturbing at all <laughs> so almost in disappointment nothing <laughs> disturbing at all this, uh, <laughs> this thing of um, this thing of portals is is sort of strangely present throughout um, the exhibition and sort of like what Sarah was referring before when she told me about making a work about sales, the weird kind of kismet that there's several artists that yeah. you know made works about sales and sailing and um, and the same kind of thing with kind of thresholds and, and doorways. One we initiated, which is which is really important, it's a very significant thing, right at the at the start of the exhibition. So you come through the you know the beautiful portico through those columns and into Gallery One. And Gallery One, um, when when we were originally planning the biennial. Um, that, that, that room wasn't included. You know, traditionally the vinyl's over in the, in, yeah. in the other side. But that came available and, and you know, um, Rana and Lisa were like, would you like to use this? And this is like the, the gallery of your imagination. You know, I said it looks like the galleries like in Bugs Bunny cartoons where they run through. It's just this grand European style kind of gallery. And we spoke to uh, Rhoda Jide um, from the APY lands um, uh, who's now living and working in, in Adelaide about coming in to, to paint on the wall, like paint on the archway around this sort of archway into the beautiful, amazing and celebrated um, Elder Wing. And uh, she sort of came in and checked it out with the guys from the APY lands and sort of consulting with the, the senior women. And, um, and yeah, they, they, they decided that they, they would like to do it and, you know, could you know, painted right onto the architecture and made this kind of portal that you walk through. And it's really interesting because, um, um, you know, once again about memory and kind of lost her, her grandmother who she got 
got the story that she paints from. This is Rhoda. Rhoda, yeah. yeah. Her grandmother passed um, on, on um, North Terrace at the hospital just down near Lot 14 or whatever. And that's on her deathbed. She was given that, that, that story. The Piltati Jakarta yeah, story. Yeah. yeah. And what's beautiful is that, so Rhoda had finished the, the mural and it's extraordinary. If you haven't seen it, you know, like if you see one thing in the biennial, I think check that out. But um, she'd sort of packed up, packed up all her paints and she said, oh, hang on, could, um, could I have the paint back? And they're like, oh, okay, and they got the paint. And she inscribed on the wall um, in language, and it says, um, uh, like, welcome, what do you hear? What do you see? What do you feel? Uh, this is my grandmother's country. And it was just such a, you know, an incredible kind of uh, act, an incredible kind of idea of, of creating this kind of portal. And I think it's actually reflective of what those kind of spaces are. I mean, the one thing, you know, in the pandemic, particularly up in Sydney, was that all of those kind of third spaces were, were, were cut off to us, right? Yeah. We, you know, and same here, like there's a time when the museum was closed, the libraries were closed, the sporting grounds, whatever the sort of space that you go to outside of your home is closed. And um, I think we all sort of collectively realised how important those spaces are you know, places of worship, whatever it might be. And that feeling of walking back into the art gallery of South Australia and that, that kind of momentum, we realise how, how central these spaces are and that's, what, that's why they're so important. Uh, it's been a remarkable biennial and it will continue to be, as I say, it's on to the 5th of June. Uh, Adelaide Festival, obviously very proud in its modest way to be involved. Um, and full credit to Rara and, of course, to you, Sebastian, a remarkable piece um, which um, helps us to think about our times in so many ways. Uh, I should observe, if you'd like to hear more from Sarah Waters, there'll be a Tuesday talk at the gallery on the 22nd of March, about nine days at 12.30 in Gallery 24, so you'll be back there again to talk okay. further about it. So if you would like to um, bring someone along and hear that conversation, the, the, it's wonderful the work that the gallery does to keep the, those conversations going. I'm sorry that we lost Sean through, through to time, but we did get the word ludic in. And I'm going to use the word ludic, Sean's word ludic, from henceforth. I'm not going to talk about play anymore. I'm going to talk about ludic entrances. Um, uh, wonderful to see him. And, on, and we've got the presiding spirit of Dennis. We've been talking about Dennis Golding. There's Dennis with his lattice work from... Uh, and that, I presume that photo's taken down at La Perouse, is it, Sebastian? Or? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's at um, that, that kind of part of the world, in, in Botany Bay, uh, looking right. back, yeah. Uh, as a presiding spirit, could you join me the ghost of Sean Gladwell and the presence of Sarah Waters and uh, Sebastian Goldsmith. Thank you. Thank you.